0: All right, church family, we're going to move into the book of Isaiah again. We are, this will catch you when you think about things that you have to do, we are three weeks away from the first Sunday in Advent. Yeah, it's coming fast. I don't know about you, one of the traditions for a lot of people at Advent season is going to see Handel's great composition, the Messiah, is going to see that performed, and The beginning of that starts with an overture, and then the very first words that are sung in Handel's Messiah come from Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. That line begins what is essentially the second half of Isaiah, 1 to 39, one section, 40 to 66, largely the second half. But you could also divvy Isaiah up into three sections, 1 through 39, then 40 to 55, and then 56 to the end, to chapter 66. And so that that verse is pivotal, Isaiah 40, verse 1, because comfort becomes one of the themes that runs through chapters 40 through 55, God comforting his people. And, and, And the reason for that we've seen it as we've been walking through this, is Isaiah is prophesying of judgment. He's prophesying of an expected punishment that is coming to the people of Judah, that he will use the the army of Babylon to bring about his judgment on their sin. And he says in Isaiah 40 verse 2 that this comfort is resting in two assurances that relate to to what lies ahead for Jerusalem. In Isaiah 40 verse 2, he says, tell Jerusalem that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort my people. Tell Jerusalem that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. There's two disasters looming for the people of Jerusalem. The near one is terrible but the other one is worse. The near one is what they face with the Babylonians and and the judgment of God in that, God raising up an army to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple and to take the people captive. But the, the greater one, the greater one is their iniquity. The warfare is ended, and and that will come in the form of God's deliverance of the people from captivity. Warfare may even be a strong term because it really was very one-sided in terms of Babylon and, and Jerusalem. Babylon simply surrounded and captured Jerusalem. So the warfare is ended, but the iniquity is pardoned. That's really critical because that's what chapters 40 through 55 then begin to help us exposit what that means when God declares comfort for his people through even the pardoning of their iniquity. How is such comfort possible? How does God forgive sin? How does he pardon iniquity? The, the answer to that would be words of unrivaled comfort, because ultimately sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what stands between us and our creator. And so you want to speak comfort to me, you tell me how it is That the holy creator of the universe would look on me and no longer see only my sin, but would actually see me as one of his own, as one that he has redeemed. That would bring incredible comfort. So turn to Isaiah 49. We're going to start this morning in Isaiah 49, 14, and move through a number of different verses. We'll cover every single verse, but we'll get through 52, 12. And that should signal to you, if if you know the book of Isaiah, that next week we get into One of the best-known passages, one of the more important passages, they're all significant in Isaiah, but when you think of Isaiah, typically we're thinking of prophecies of the coming of Jesus in Isaiah 7 and 9, the, the Lord in His holiness, God in His holiness in Isaiah 6. But we also often think about Isaiah 53 and the picture of the suffering servant. And so next week, the last part of chapter 52 and 53, and then the following week, we'll finish up this major section with chapters 54 and 55, and then January, we'll come back and finish 56 through 66. For this morning, though, this theme of comfort, as it sort of weaves its way through the last part of 49, 50, 51, and into chapter 52, none of us is immune from the need for comfort. We've all experienced hurt. Uh, as a, a toddler, you you fell and you hurt yourself and, and you wanted a mom or dad to hold you and and comfort you and, and maybe kiss the owie and tell you it was gonna be okay, right? As, as a younger child, you experienced some kind of taunting, some kind of teasing from someone, and you again looking for someone who would comfort you, someone who would speak kindness to you and would help you. As a teen, you you, you may have had that moment where you did something wrong and you thought the consequences of this, the outcome of this, were just going to be disastrous forever. You you, you couldn't imagine how things could ever get better after what you had done, and and you needed someone to comfort you and say, no, this this is not the end of the world. There may be consequences, but, but there's still... God can still work in this. And as an adult, we've all lost someone close. We've all experienced the need for comfort. There is comfort in loved ones, people who care for us, in the warmth of their embrace, in the kindness of their words, when they speak God's word to us, that that is all extraordinarily helpful. But we need comfort that even exceeds that, that is sure and certain, and that comes from the one true comforter, and that is God. And so four lessons on on comfort from this passage, and and we're triggered to start with from Isaiah 49, verse 14. This is kind of the launching point of, of how this comfort becomes an issue. Isaiah 49, 14 says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Starts with but because it's, it's, it's just followed. If you look back at verse 13, we were there last week. Sing for joy, O heavens and exult, O earth, break forth into singing. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion. But Zion says, nope, not us we're forgotten. There's these jarring moments in Isaiah where the scene just sort of shifts. We saw it at the end of chapter 48, where it was God will deliver you from out of captivity in Babylon by raising up the Persians. And when he does, you go out and you proclaim his his deliverance. And then at the very last moment in chapter 48, it says, and there will be no peace for the wicked. And, And it just happens here again, where he's just Celebrate the coming servant and what the servant will do, and how there will be singing and rejoicing. And then Zion says, "God's forgotten us; He has forsaken us." Need to just pause here a moment and try, as best we can, to put ourselves back at 700 BC. We have the the benefit of the New Testament. We know how the story goes. But if you'll think back for a moment and imagine yourself in the position of of the Jewish people in 700 BC, they are, the the, the understanding of what is coming in terms of deliverance is unfolding. It's sort of developing before them. We've seen this servant in chapter 42, 49. We'll see again in 50 and then in 53. And, And each element is kind of a, Developing description. They're, they're getting a, a, a better and better picture of, of who this servant is. Uh, when I was a teenager, maybe some of you had as a hobby, um, I, had, I had a dark room. It was my mom's laundry, but it also worked as a dark room to develop film and pictures. And so you would take the film. And you would put it in a canister with some solution. And you would develop the film. And then you'd take that strip of film. And you'd put it into this projector. And and it would project the image onto a special piece of paper that you would then dip into a fluid. And when you did that, you would start to see what it was that you had taken, the picture that you had taken. And it would slowly start to come to life. And you would see it. Some of you are so young that you're thinking, that's just (laughs) archaic. Can you imagine that there was a day when you would take a picture and not see what it was for weeks? You'd take that film down to the drugstore, and you'd hope for the best, and then you'd get that little package that you'd open up, and it was like, wow, I took this, and I took that. That, That's the way it used to be, kids. Um, But that, that process, I loved doing that because it was you saw something just sort of happening on that paper. You saw this picture that was coming to life, and then you could finally, after it was all said and done, you could turn on the light and you could see the picture in all of its glory. It is so hard for us to fathom what it's like in 700 BC where you're getting sort of blurry images, you're getting getting a sense. There's one coming, he's born of a woman, he, he's, he's coming to, to bring God's work of deliverance, but we're still, we're still trying to understand who he is. And so each of these, these steps sort of unfolds this description and makes it more and more clear. And, and I say all that because the Jewish people are trying really hard here to fathom all that Yahweh is doing as he's speaking to them through Isaiah. They, they know his truth. They can go back to to Moses in Genesis chapter three and know that there is a promise that one is coming who will be born from this the the, the descendants of this woman who will crush. The enemy's head. He will he will conquer and defeat him. They can they can look at the chronicles in Second Samuel seventeen of the of the kings and see that there's a promise given to to David that there will come one from your line who will be a king who will reign forever. And so they they've got all of these images that are coming together and revolving around this one, this servant. And at the same time, they experience captivity. And their sin seems like an insurmountable obstacle between them and God. So yes, the servant is coming, but this is a nation that's experiencing captivity and there are still questions. God, did you abandon us? Have have you forsaken us? In chapter 50, verse 1, they'll, they'll even use the language of divorce. You must have divorced us or you, you sold us off to pay a debt is one of the things they suggest in Isaiah 50 verse 1. Now, we, we read that and we think that's absurd, but these are people who are speaking from out of captivity and saying, God, where are you? And you and I might not use the same language of divorce or being sold, but we've all experienced times in our life when we've asked questions of God and said, I I know, I know what it says, but I, I, I don't know where you are. I'm, I'm wondering about this. I, I don't understand this circumstance, and I feel alone. And we've needed comfort. And we've needed truth. And so, look what God says 49 15, his first reply to their charge that he's forsaken them. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet. I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You, you ask me if I have forgotten you. Can a mother forget her infant child? Can she lose compassion for the child that she has given birth to? And, and, and so even if, even if you say, yes, I've seen that circumstance. It, it has happened. God says, not with me. I will not forget you. You are like as if it's tattooed, as if you are engraved on me. You, are, you cannot be separated from me. You belong to me. He uses children both here and then again later on in the passage in verses 18 to 21 because he says, even when you look around and the Babylonians have come and the land is desolate and you think we've, we've lost everything, God has forsaken us, he reminds them that even in your grieving, there will still be more children. And that should remind you of the promise to Abraham that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. I am still with you. I am still blessing you. I am still providing through you. And, and so I have not forgotten you. In fact, you will, you will look around even in your hour of dismay and you will say, where did all these people come from? How has this happened? Because the Lord has done it, because he has not forgotten his people. Down verse 22 of Isaiah 49. "'Thus says the Lord God, "'Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, "'raise my signal to the peoples, "'and they shall bring your sons in their arms, "'and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders.' Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. First message here about comfort to God's children is you are never alone, you are never forgotten, no matter how Hard your circumstances are, no matter how difficult this person's being in your life, no matter how far you may feel, God has not left you. He is not busy with other more important matters than your life. He's not forsaken you. We need to rehearse this truth to ourselves in the good days so that in the difficult days, it comes easily that we remember, I belong to him and he has not forgotten me. He is the Lord, my redeemer. Think about your closest human relationship. Think about the person that you feel most held by, most safe with, most comforted by. Now magnify that in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine and know that God loves you perfectly and he has not forgotten you and he will not forsake you. And that is in spite of the fact that he actually knows your thoughts. He knows the things that you think you are doing in secret. In spite of that, he still says, I will not forsake you. Sin can certainly disrupt our fellowship with God, our communion with God. Our our sin can make us feel distant from him. That's why in in Genesis 50, when Yahweh says to them, I didn't divorce you, I didn't sell you, but what happened to you in going into judgment was something you brought on yourself. You, You did it by virtue of your sin." You brought judgment upon yourself just as I had promised you because of your sin, and you drove yourself from me, which reinforces the truth that when we persist in sin without repentance, and then we wonder why we feel distant from God, there's a reason for that. We need to rehearse these truths and know that he is good, and we need to resist the temptation in those hard times for Satan to to isolate us, to move us away from community and and away from our deep faith in God. The Lord's children are never alone. They are never forsaken. All right, I want to move on to chapter 50. Third of the the four servant songs, throughout these songs, a lot of it's autobiographical. The servant himself is speaking in some way, and he does so again, gives us a little bit more of the details that fill in the picture. I'm picking up in verse four of Isaiah 50. Servant says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Think about this now. This is is the servant who we come to know as the Messiah, Jesus saying, I am taught by him. He awakens me as, as one who is taught. He opens my ear. Back in, in verse two of Isaiah 50, Yahweh had said, why, when I spoke, did no one obey? Why, when I spoke, did no one listen and respond? And here in verses four and five, he brings forth the servant who, who says, I, I am delighted, to listen to God's voice. I am delighted to hear Yahweh's voice and be taught by him. I do his will. This is This is the life of Jesus Christ, the earthly life of Jesus Christ as one who is dependent on the will and the words of the Father. In John chapter 12, 49, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. This is the fulfillment of the servant song in Isaiah 50. This is Jesus saying, just as the servant says, I will listen for the voice of Yahweh and he will speak to me and I will then refresh you with that. I will speak that to you. That's why when Jesus is tempted to turn the stones into bread, he says, man shall not live by bread alone. It is by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Jesus is is hearing, is listening to. It's not that Jesus is ignorant in need of teaching, but Jesus in his human nature is reliant upon the Father and he does, he he savors and takes in that teaching so that he might then give that instruction to others and sustain them with it. The servant will listen to God's word and be filled with it. And so how does that fit into this theme of comfort? Verse six, he just got done saying, the Lord's opened my ears. I wasn't rebellious. Verse six, I gave my back, to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Saw the first glimpse of this in in chapter 42, when it says the servant will not faint, will not become discouraged at what happens in in terms of earthly ministry, again in chapter 49, speaks again of the servant. We're getting glimpses of the fact that the servant will suffer and, and it'll become most clear in the fourth servant song. The Lord's servant will be beaten. He will be treated shamefully. And this picture in verse 6, Jesus will endure man's sin against him, man's evil against him, and it will seem shameful and disgraceful. But it's in that context that we have the servant saying, my comfort is in the word of the Lord. My comfort comes from hearing and obeying him and doing his will because I hear his instruction and I hold fast to that. And so in verse seven, he says, the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He's listening to Yahweh's voice and the servant is, is helped. He is provided for by hearing God's instruction. And so when you get down to to verse 10, who among you, it's Isaiah now, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. First lesson on comfort is God's children are never forgotten. And the second is we need to be faithfully listening to God's word, especially in times of hardship. We need to hear his voice. We need to be in the word. The life-sustaining word of the Lord gives the servant hope and endurance. He is able to entrust himself to him who judges justly, Peter tells us. And so he is relying on the word. Even as as he is being treated disgracefully, the picture back in verse 4 is he awakens each morning with fresh instruction from the Lord, the Father speaking to the Son to give him truth that he will give to weary people. John seven sixteen. Jesus said, "'My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me.'" So I'll take from verse 10 and ask you the question, who are you listening to in times of crisis? Who, who are you seeking for wisdom? What, what voice are you hearing when, when things get tough, when your marriage gets hard, when your job starts to sour, when a friend betrays you? Who do you listen to in those moments? Because I'll I'll suggest to you that if you are not intentional about seeking to hear from the Lord through his word, then you will probably be captured by self-talk. You'll hear something and it'll be you speaking to you. And more often than not, when it's you speaking to you, it's words of discouragement and hopelessness or anger or bitterness or retaliation or something. If we are not intentional to say, I need, I need to hear from the Lord. I need to listen to his voice through his word, because verse 10 says, if you fear the Lord, then you obey his voice. Now, if we're listening to him, what are we taking out of that? And here's the third lesson, and that is to know him and to know his character and who he is and what he's done. Verse 4 commands again the people to listen and give attention. He said, um, uh, sorry, chapter 51 now, as we move into chapter 51. He's talking to the people again about um, listening. Verse four, give attention to me, my people, give ear to me, my nation. So he's, he's commanding them to listen. And then he describes himself in verse four, for a law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Who is this one who is speaking? It's not just a voice It's not just okay that this is God, but he's actually adding into the description here and saying, I am the just, law-giving, strong Savior. Need to we need to know who he is. And, and understand his character. So look at the next few verses, and I've underlined for the uh, what will go up on the screen in this passage. I've just underlined some of the, the phrases here because I think they help us to see where he's drawing our attention to in this. Isaiah 51, verse five. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. Uh, my underlining didn't carry over. I just see on the screen. All right, sorry about that. My righteousness, here I'll underline, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. You see a theme in these phrases? What what God is calling us to? He's not saying, I simply want you to listen to my word just to be encouraged and exhorted. But I want you to listen because of who I am. You need to know who I am and know what I have done. I am the God who is righteous. The thing we need to see about his character here is he is the righteous, law-giving savior. Four times in this passage, he speaks of his righteousness. One of the defining characteristics of God is that he is perfectly righteous. He is right in all his ways. Psalm 145, 17 says, righteous in all his ways. And because God is just and right, God himself is then the only one who can provide salvation for sinners. Because he is the righteous God, he must make the means for the unrighteous to be able to come to him. And he does that through his salvation. That's why he repeatedly says in this passage three times, my salvation. I I am righteous, I deliver the law, and I am strong to save. My arm, speaking of his strength, he is a strong and saving God. Yahweh does not just deliver captives from out of Babylon. That, that's too light of a thing to, to use the language we've seen before. He saves sinners from God's wrath. Verse 9 of 51, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generation of long ago. Stop there. O arm of the Lord. He's several times now we've seen the arm of the Lord and that should be taking you back to chapter 40 again. Beginning of this section is where he first begins to speak about the arm of the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold his reward with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young Almighty God is strong. He declares and says, this is my truth. This is how I establish it. I am righteous in all of my ways. And that is the standard. And his strong arm then gives us comfort that he rules with that. But it's also to remember that that strong arm is the one that carries his people, that is tender to his lambs. And so back in 51.4, God's people are called to remember these truths, give attention to me, give ear to me. God wants us to know who he is. Doesn't simply want us to read just by virtue of, okay, I'm doing my devotionals. I got to read my chapter today. I got my chapter done. Check. He wants us to, to know more about his character and know what he's done. And, and he's saying it as explicitly as he can here. I am a strong God who can save. Look down at verse 12. I... I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Let me pause there. Know God, know his character, and know what he has done. What, what, what he's saying here is you're, you're fearing things. You're afraid of stuff here on earth, of what other people can do. Very much like what Jesus said, to not fear the one who can only kill the body. And, and he's saying, you're anxious about all of these things that you face and all of these trials. You, you belong to me. I am your Lord. I comfort you. You've forgotten me. And that's verse 13. You've forgotten the Lord your maker. The one who stretched out the heavens and the earth. The one who, the verses before that speak of the deliverance out of Egypt. Know who I am and know what I have done and trust me in these things. Know God and his character. There's a corollary to this too. That that Isaiah 51 is saying that by knowing him, we know he's righteous, and we know he's strong to save. but the fact that he's righteous also tells us the other truth that goes with that is not only is he strong to save, but he's also strong to judge the wicked. And the end of chapter 51 paints this picture of Jerusalem at the time of, of the Babylonian captivity like a widow who's been left without any help. And she is, she is wandering the streets. And, and Isaiah 51, 18, she has no one left to guide her. Verse 20, her children have been struck down. They are not there to help. And then comes verse 21 that says, therefore, therefore, verse 21, and now verses 21 to 23. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. And verses 21 through 23 go on to describe God saying, you've experienced judgment. You've experienced punishment for your sin. But the the bowl of my wrath, as he pictures it here, my judgment against your sin, ultimately I am just, and it will be passed to your oppressors and to those who torment you. They will drink of this and they will experience judgment. So when it seems as if you are being trampled upon and as if there is no one there to help I defend my people and I crush the wicked who oppose me and my people. This is the justice and righteousness of God. We find comfort in that because it reminds us again that God is a just judge. His truth prevails. And so not only does he take his lambs into his arms, but he also crushes their enemies. And, and And that's why then verse seven, we looked at that before, says to not fear the disgrace. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at the revilings. Don't fear man's insults. find comfort in me. don't don't fear that that when you do the right thing and you are mocked for it and you feel insulted by that or humiliated in some way because you've spoken truth and you've done the right thing, know that the strong arm of the Lord holds you. He is your just judge. Rest in him. All right, chapter 52. God begins speaking to his people. Starts with the awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. But I want to pick up in verse three. And here they come again. He's rehearsing back to what they had said earlier. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. All right, remember the earlier line, you must have sold us to pay off some debt. And God's saying, no, no, there there was no monetary transaction that went on here. I'm not in need of anything that I needed to to sell you to pay off some kind of debt. You're, You're the one that brought about your own captivity. You went into captivity. I required that. But I also am the God who redeems, and I do not charge you for that. There will be no transaction on your part either. You will not pay for your atonement. You will not somehow work your way to earn your atonement. I, God, redeem you without money. I provide the means of atonement. I pay the price. It'll be the servant we'll see next week in 53. He ultimately will bear the price for our atonement. But the, the comfort here to the people is, this is my work I will redeem you. So we're into this theme of redemption and drop down to verse seven, and this will sound familiar, the beginning of it. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Four lessons. God's children, we, we derive comfort from knowing we are never alone, never forgotten, by listening to his word, by knowing who he is in his character, and fourthly, by finding our greatest comfort in his rule and his salvation, by knowing that God rules and saves. The the messenger here is described in four ways. He's proclaiming peace. He has a message of happiness. He's announcing salvation. And primarily, the messenger is declaring good news. Now, here's that point where we, we want to immediately jump forward to Romans 10 and say... He is, he is proclaiming the good news of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. But isn't it interesting that what he says here, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is good news. After all of the bad news of the, the captivity and the, the punishment, this, this, this picture here is of this messenger who is running. And he is bringing such great news that even his feet, his dirty feet are considered glorious. Now, that, that's just such a wonderful picture when you consider that the, the feet in that culture were really not a very clean part of the body by any stretch. And yet he says the feet are even beautiful. And what is the news that he brings? And we want to immediately fill in here with the gospel. And that's, that's part of it. But, but paramount to that is God reigns. The Lord reigns. In Matthew 10, when Jesus sends his disciples out, to the villages, he says, "You're not to go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. You are to go to the lost sheep of Israel. You, you are to go to the Jewish people. And what is it that they were to proclaim? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your king is coming. Your king is about to take his throne. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the good news prophesied in Isaiah 52:7. Your God reigns. Our hope." For our salvation, our hope in the gospel has to rest on the foundation that God rules. That because God is king over all, he is sovereign over all, that therefore when he, he declares salvation, he's believable because he can do it. He can provide atonement and he can save and it is because of his reign. It's his reign that assures that the promise of Genesis 3 of a child who will come, who will crush the enemy... That will come true because God reigns. 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection chapter, right? We think of it, 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 it telling of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the conclusions in 1 Corinthians 15 is this, verse 24, then comes the end. Christ is risen, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is Death. He takes us from the resurrection to the reign of Christ, that because he has risen, he defeats all of the enemies, every rule and authority, and he shall reign forever and ever. Another call back to Handel's Messiah. I had more people at the door. I don't know if they'll remember anything in the message, but people are saying, I'm going to go see Handel's Messiah this year, because all of these passages of scripture that bring to mind these glorious images of our ruling king, and that's what he's that's what he's doing here. The reign of God guarantees that sin will be atoned for, the penalty will be paid, and the power of sin and death will be defeated. The arm of the Lord not only defeats armies like Babylon, but it is strong. Strong to assure ultimate victory. Now again, we, we hear Isaiah 52.7, we think of Romans 10. Paul's ex- speaking explicitly how beautiful our defeated of them would bring good news. He's in the context of believing in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection, But if you think about Isaiah 52, seven and this promise that God reigns, put it now in the context. I I wanna read to you from Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. Here's the saving power of the gospel, made alive together, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that has stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Most of the time we could stop there and go, amen. I am forgiven, the debt has been canceled. But then look at the next verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ strike the death blow against his opponents. They they crush his opponents. They crush the power of sin and death. The the cunning forces that, that held people captive, he now defeats them. In his resurrection, he reigns. And isn't that then, when we're talking about this matter of comfort, isn't that the essence of comfort in the Christian life? We have not been promised a trouble-free existence. We have not been promised, despite some of the things you may see on TV from time to time, we have not been promised prosperity at every turn. In fact, we have been warned that there will be trials in this life. We live in a fallen world and we don't have to look far to see the evidence of it. I look at my own heart and I can see my own sin and know that I live in a fallen world and I can see the the, the results of disease in the world and the decay of age and all of these things that, that remind us that we are in a fallen world. There is no escaping trouble. But the good news is that our hope is in our righteous, saving Lord because he will reign. Because ultimately, he is victorious. And so, Yahweh... My circumstances are are not apart from him. They are under his rule. And so I can find comfort in trial by knowing that the Lord still rules. He's still on his throne even as I walk through this circumstance. The maker of heaven and earth who is rescuing his people, who we've seen throughout the scriptures delivering his people, saves And he has the power to save because he is king. Salvation is not simply part of God's resume. Salvation is who God is. He is the righteous savior because he is the king. He is Lord. He is strong. And so I can can face whatever circumstances with absolute certainty that the one who has saved me is king. And not just king over my life, but king over the creation that he has made. And that would then lead us right into, and we'll end with these verses, Isaiah 52, 8 through 10. The voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. See these guys? They're on the wall. They're looking. They're they're, they're in a difficult time, and they're looking. And now they see. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Bring forth Together, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has what? Comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Can I just exhort you with one last closing picture? And that is the next, and, and you may be walking through it right now, but the next crisis, the next hardship, the next trial, be that watchman. Be that person who is peering into the word, who is prayerfully peering out and saying, Lord, you are the righteous king. I am am trusting you to come with deliverance and with comfort and with hope. He is the one who comes to comfort his people. And that, he says, prompts them to break forth into singing together. I can think of no better cue for us than to, to sing. So let's pray and then we will sing together. Lord Jesus. We, we see in these prophecies of Isaiah, we see you. We see the one who is coming, the one that we know has come. The one who was treated scornfully, was despised and rejected by men, who suffered beating and ultimately the, the shame of crucifixion. Because you were in your body bearing our sins. Our anger, lies, lust, uh, selfishness. We could go on and on. You bore in your body our sin that you might take the just wrath of the Father, poured out against our sin, so that it would be punished to the point of death by a perfect sacrifice. And then you rose, and you conquered death and defeated its power, the power of sin. And now, Lord, we we who are here, we who are trusting in Jesus Christ can rejoice that we have life in you, that we have forgiveness, that we have hope, that we have comfort Comfort your people with these truths, Lord. You know the hearts of our people here this morning. Some may be walking through deeper situations than others, experiencing more pain and hardship. Lord, we pray that as a body we would minister peace and grace and kindness, but also we pray, Lord, that your truths would bring a comfort the likes of which the world can never give. You speak of it in... Scripture is the peace that passes all understanding. And so, Lord, I pray that your comfort would rain down on your people as they walk through a trial or hardship, that they would know that your character has not changed, you are who you are, and you continue to reign, and you are a just, saving God with a strong arm in their circumstances and a strong arm to gently carry your lambs. Lord, if anyone's listening to this who is not trusting alone in Jesus Christ as Savior, would today be the day that you would open their eyes to see that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that they might have life, and that by turning from sin and trusting in Christ, there is comfort and hope and forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, you are good. You are gracious and righteous. We could declare with Isaiah these marvelous attributes of who you are. And we are grateful now to be able to to lift up our voices in song and rejoice at what you have done.